You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, when we think about Noah's Ark, what picture pops into mind? Well, usually we think of Noah's Ark as a children's story, or the stuff of coloring books and children's literature. There's a smiling old man and old woman on a tiny boat with oversized animals and a rainbow in the background, right? Because culturally, we associate any story that features animals with children. But the truth is, the biblical account of Noah is not a story for children. Far from being a safe, smiley story about cuddly animals, the biblical account of Noah shows us in the starkest terms the fearsome justice and wrath of God, the horrible nature of sin and the terrible penalty it deserves, and the glorious kindness and mercy of God. The story of Noah is not a cute tale for children. It is a true account that we all need to listen to because it is a powerful portrait of the destiny of the unrighteous and of the saving power found in the gospel. And that's what we'll see today in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 through chapter 8, verse 19. And today we're going to ask three questions about this passage. First, what does God see? Second, what does God say? And third, what does God do? Start with our first point. What does God See, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 9. Genesis 6, 9 says, These are the generations of Noah. Now, this introductory statement begins the fourth section in Genesis. And the key word, again, is the word translated generations. This Hebrew word basically means, here's what happened to and after whomever is named. And so, this section is about Noah, who we met last week, and Noah's children. Now, to understand Noah's story, we have to understand the world that he lived in. And we're told about that world in chapter 6, verse 11. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God made creation very good. It reflected his character and his design. But things didn't stay good. Because the first people, Adam and Eve, decided they knew better for themselves than God did. And they rebelled against God's rule and God's word. And they fell under God's judgment. And their children followed their parents' rebellious pattern. In chapter 4, we saw that Cain murdered his brother Abel. We saw Cain's descendant Lamech become the father of sexual immorality. And in chapter 6, we saw human civilization embracing shocking immorality as people married angels and produced monstrous interspecies hybrids. And now we see where things wind up. Not only has immorality become commonplace, but violence fills the earth. Life is not valued. Murder is everywhere. Beyond that, we see the recurrence of the word corruption here. 
Now, this Hebrew word gets at the idea of being ruined. God's good creation is ruined by all of this evil. Humanity is utterly ruined. We saw God's evaluation of humanity last week in chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Humanity is thoroughly corrupted because of sin. We are totally depraved. But that's not all because our author Moses goes further and he says, All flesh has been ruined. Even the animals have fallen into corruption and violence. Everything is profoundly wrong because that's what sin does. James 1.15 says, Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin corrupts, ruins, kills, and left unchecked, sin spreads its pollution. Galatians 5.9 says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that's what's happened. God sees the world. It's filled with evil. But that's not all he sees. Look back at verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah is unlike the rest of the world because we're told Noah was righteous. Now this Hebrew word speaks of one who is innocent. That doesn't mean that Noah was sinless. He wasn't. Noah was a descendant of Adam. He was a sinner by nature. We'll see in chapter 9, he was a sinner by choice. Noah was not sinless. But God declared Noah to be not guilty. That's what the New Testament calls justification. Romans 3.28 says, A man is justified by faith. And Noah was a man of faith. He knew God. He believed God's word. He trusted himself to God's mercy. And God counted it to him as righteousness. And Noah responded to God's salvation by living a life that generally obeyed God's will. He trusted God and he obeyed God. Moreover, we're told Noah was blameless in his generation. Now, that's a pretty rare thing to read in the Old Testament, somebody was blameless. And again, this does not mean sinless perfection, but it means that generally Noah abstained from evil. So he was unlike his contemporaries. His life was not marked by immorality or violence. His was a life that trembled at God's word. Indeed, we're told Noah walked with God. That expression is only used twice in the Bible to describe Noah and his grandfather Enoch, whom God spared from death. This speaks of the closest fellowship with God. Of course, Noah did not see God face to face, but he was personally close to God because he constantly sought to know Him and obey Him and serve Him, not as some duty, but as a joy. Now, if we're not careful as we read this, we might think, well, this is telling us Noah was different from the world because there was something good in Noah. Everybody else was stupid, but Noah was intelligent. Everybody else was totally depraved, but Noah was inherently good. Everybody else chose poorly, but Noah, in his wisdom, made a move towards God out of his own will and earned God's favor. Is that what's being taught here? No. Because Ephesians 2 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
Salvation is never of ourselves. It's never because of something good rooted in us. And it's never a result of our works. Otherwise, we could boast in God's presence. We could say, I did it. I earned my salvation. That's not how it works. Salvation is always of God. It is always a result of grace, of God's unmerited favor, a free gift given to the unworthy, because none of us deserve God's favor. Paul says about our natural state in Romans 7, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. We are all totally depraved, ruined sinners by nature and choice. Noah too. But God in his goodness extended grace to Noah, which is received through faith. And that's how Noah was saved. Genesis 6, 8 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's grace. God gave grace to Noah. And Noah responded with faith. And then Noah produced a life of obedience. That, or that faith produced a life of obedience. And that's how it's supposed to work. Ephesians 2 says, yes, salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. But the next verse, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saves people apart from works, but God saves people so that they will then perform good works. And that's what happened with Noah. Noah lived an exemplary life. But that wasn't the cause of his salvation. That was the effect. That was what was produced as a result of God's grace working in him through faith. All right, now in these opening verses, what does God see? The wretched evil of the world and the exemplary life of Noah. In short, God sees everything. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, this is great news when we consider the evils of our world, when we think about the horrors of the last century, the Holocaust, or the countless Christians who were persecuted, or the ongoing war in the Ukraine, or when we think about the wrongs that we have suffered personally. We say it's good that God knows and sees all, that nothing is hidden from his view. And as Abraham says later in this book, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. God sees all evil and he will hold it to account. That's great news objectively. But there's a flip side to that coin, which is that God sees everything in us too, including all the sin and evil that we do and desire. God sees and knows us and there's no escaping his gaze. There's no faking him out. Oh, we might be good at putting on a show for other people at work or at church or at home. We might be good at pretending to a righteousness we don't really have. Pharisees were great at that. But who wasn't fooled? Jesus. Because we can't fool God. He knows all. So what does God see as he looks at you? Life that trusts him? That trembles at his word? that delights in spending time with him, or a life that's putting on a performance, which in the end will be exposed as false. Or as you look at this passage, let's ask it this way, who are you more like? Do you see that your life is more like Noah? Have you found righteousness in the Lord by grace through faith? 
Are you striving for holiness? Do you love God? Or are you more like the world in this passage, reveling in sin and self-indulgence and saying, I don't care about God, and I don't think God cares about me. Friend, God sees everything. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. But not only does God see, He acts, and this is our second point. What does God say? As God sees the wickedness of the world, He speaks a just word of judgment. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. As God sees evil, he responds with justice. And what does justice require? What does sin deserve? Well, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's what God told Adam and Eve. When they sinned, he said, you will surely die. And when they sinned, they experienced spiritual death. They lost their relationship with God. And they began to experience physical death. Their bodies began to break down. And ultimately, the penalty that sin deserves is eternal death. Romans 2.5 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God says that sin deserves death and hell. Now, maybe you're here today and you say, Well, I don't believe that. <laughs> Nobody's perfect, right? We all sin. Most of my sins aren't hurting anybody. They really aren't that bad. God, just get over it. Or maybe you say today, well, I don't believe that God would send anybody to hell. God is love, right? Friend, God is love, but he's also just. And if you sit there and think, well, I know better about who God is and what he's going to do than what God has said in the Bible, then you are following a God you have invented in your own mind. The God of the Bible is just, holy, and righteous. The person in the Bible who spoke the most about hell is Jesus. And I would say, if we saw a judge on earth who ignored crime, who would not sentence the guilty, we would say that judge is unjust. Friend, God is not unjust. God always perfectly expresses all of his attributes, including his justice. That's why he says in Exodus 34, he will by no means clear the guilty. God's justice must be satisfied. The penalty for sin must be enforced. And it is a high penalty. Because sin is high treason in God's universe. You might say, well, it's not a big deal. No, because what sin says to God is, my will be done, not yours. I will rule, not you. That is an offense against God's infinite goodness and glory. We might imagine our sins to be very small, but when they are viewed against the one whom we have offended in the context of who he is and the absolute allegiance that he is owed, our sin is a huge transgression. It deserves the severest penalty. And that's what God decreed in Noah's day. Death is required, and death will come to all flesh. And that's still what God decrees today. The wages of sin is still death. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. Because God does more than just speak judgment. God also speaks a gracious word of mercy. Because now God reveals he intends to spare a small number of people. 
And for that purpose, he gives Noah some instructions. Look at verse 14. He says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Now, the Hebrew word translated ark here seems to come from an Egyptian word that means box. And that's how we should understand this vessel. It's somewhat like a boat, but it doesn't have oars, sails, a rudder, or a wheel. It isn't made for navigation. It's a container with one function, to withstand and survive the coming judgment, to protect life within. Noah was not a shipwright. He would have had no idea how to build this craft on his own. But God gave him the instructions, and God gave Noah some dimensions here. This is quite a large container. It was about 440 feet by 72 feet by 43 feet. You say, well, I don't know what that means. Well, it's about half the length of the Titanic, about 80% of the length of the battleship Texas. They used to be parked down in Galveston. But it's only about 40% high as most naval ships today, and it was much narrower as well. The Ark was a three-deck ship made entirely of wood. We don't know what gopher wood was. Uh, this is not a reference to an animal. A gopher is a Hebrew word, and we don't know what it means. So the translators just put gopher in the English Bible. But this was some kind of wood. And it was covered with pitch to secure it from water, and it had many rooms. On top there was a roof, but God said the roof was to be separated from the walls by about a foot and a half. And that would allow some light into the ark on top. And there was a door in the side. Now, why did Noah build this ark? Well, God told him the purpose in verse 17. God said, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Here God discloses his plan. He is going to bring a flood to kill all life. But while the flood is coming, God will spare Noah and his family. Look at verse 18. He said, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Throughout the Bible, God often makes covenants with people. These are binding arrangements defining his relationship to his people. He made covenants with Abraham and David and Israel. Well, here's the first time God says he's going to make a covenant in the Bible, and it's with Noah, who will represent the human race after the flood. Now, this signals that God intends life to continue after this judgment. The flood is not the end of history. Noah and his family will survive because God says you're going to be on the ark. But not only will Noah and his family survive, look at verse 19. He says, and of every living thing of all flesh, you will bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. God intends to spare representatives of each kind of animal which will board in pairs. They will come on the ark as male and female so that they will be able to repopulate the new world. 
Now, this language of kinds of animals appeared back in chapter 1. And we said that it refers to basic forms of animal life. So we're not talking about two of every type of dog breed on the ark, just two dogs. Not every cat breed, just two cats. And God would later give more detail about the animal population of, of the ark in chapter 7, verse 2. Look there. And God says, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. We don't know what God means by clean and unclean animals here. At this point in history, God had not allowed people yet to eat animals. So this is not a dietary law. Or maybe this was talking about sacrifice. We don't know. But God had distinguished between clean and unclean animals for some purpose. And God said that one pair of each type of unclean animals would come on the ark, but seven pairs of clean animals would. There would be a large gene pool for these animals to repopulate the earth. Now, how did these animals get gathered to come on the ark? Well, there's only two possibilities. Either Noah went and found them all, or God directed the animals to the ark. And he did that once before in this book, in the garden, when he paraded all the animals before Adam, who gave them names. How would the animals on the ark survive? Well, God told Noah in chapter 6, verse 21, Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah was to gather all kinds of food for the animals, and while he was on the ark, he was to feed them and care for them. So God gave Noah this huge task. How did Noah respond? Look at verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah's words are not recorded anywhere in our passage. What is recorded is that Noah obeyed. And it would have taken Noah a long time to obey this instruction. We don't know how long it took to build the ark. Sometimes people claim that it was 100 years, but that's never actually said in the Bible. But however long this took, Noah obeyed. And as he did, he must have seemed totally insane to his contemporaries. People would have had a good laugh as they watched Noah build that boat. But Noah was not deterred. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. When God spoke to Noah, Noah believed God even though Noah had never seen anything like this flood God was describing. But because God said it, Noah believed it. And Noah acted upon his belief. He feared God and obeyed. And by so doing, he exemplified the faith that saves. And he exposed the wickedness of his unbelieving generation that deserved death. Now what do we see here in our second point? God pronounces two ultimate fates, two destinies. One for those who will not repent and believe, and one for those who turn to God in repentant faith. And what was true in Noah's day is true in our day. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13, The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. And the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. 
there are still only two destinies. A path of unrepentant sin that leads to hell and a path of repentant faith that leads to eternal life in the new creation. And now we're going to see what those two paths really look like as we come to our last point. What does God do? And friend, this is the most important point of the whole sermon. What does God do? He does exactly what he says he's going to do. God has spoken a word of judgment. Now he makes good on it. God said there would be a flood. Now it happens. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Verse 4, he says, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. God gives Noah a one-week warning. And eventually that week ended, and Noah and the animals got on the ark. Now that's recorded for us twice here. The first record is briefer. The second is more specific. For the sake of time, we'll just read the second, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month. Man, that's a precise date, isn't it? Moses wants us to know this is history. This is not a legend. Legends don't take place on a certain date in a particular year. Legends take place once upon a time. But this is not a legend. And we know that because there's geological evidence that the world was inundated by a flood. And because societies on every habited continent commonly share stories about a global flood that was survived by one family. That's because something happened. And Moses here tells us what really happened. Now, maybe today you say, well, I'm a man of science. I don't need to believe this, or I'm a woman of science. We all know better today. Friend, this is the same issue we just read about with Noah. Noah read something that if he'd heard about it from any other source, would not have made any sense, but God said it in his word. Noah believed. That's what faith does. Will you believe God? This is, there is good reason to believe this really happened. And indeed, on this particular date, God fulfilled his word and he judged the world. Verse 11. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. The world filled with water. It came from below. Back in chapter 1, you'll remember the world was filled with water. Genesis 1-2 called it the deep. And on the second day of creation, God parted the waters. Part of the waters went above. We said probably outside the material universe. The others remained below. And of the waters below, God gathered them into seas and, and oceans and apparently also into reservoirs under the dry land. Because in chapter 2, we read that the land was regularly irrigated by water that came up from the ground. Well, now this subterranean water bursts forth. The water begins to rise. And the water in the seas pours onto the land. And at the same time, water comes from above. Verse 12 says, And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Maybe this was a normal process. But because this was a global event that continued nonstop for 40 days, we should probably understand this as a miracle. That God sent water, perhaps the water he had taken out of the visible universe, back onto the earth in a heavy rain. And the waters poured in. And as this starts, the remnant boards the ark. Look at verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth 
and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Noah and family got on the boat. God caused the animals to walk on the boat. And then God slammed the door. That's it. The opportunity for repentance is over. The possibility of salvation for the millions and maybe billions outside is foreclosed. God sealed the ark. And that was it. Verse 17. And the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Forty days of inundation, causing even the highest mountains to be covered by more than 20 feet of water. And this is the end of the civilization that we've read about in the last few chapters. More than that, in a real sense, this is the end of creation. Because the flood brings the planet back to the place where it was at the start of the second day. The dry land is erased, and the defining geographic feature of the world is again water, an abyssal ocean. But as the waters rise, so does the ark. The boat God designed is seaworthy. And while every other vestige of creation is undone, the ark floats and the lives aboard live. But outside, verse 21... And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth. 150 days. All life is expunged. All animal life other than the sea creatures. All human life. For as long as anyone could remember, Crazy Noah had been building that boat. Crazy Noah had warned them. 2 Peter 2.5 calls Noah a herald of righteousness. Noah had preached to his contemporaries, repent! And had they? No, they laughed. They hadn't paid him any attention. They kept living the way they wanted to because Romans 3.10 says none is righteous, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Luke 17.26 says they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The violence continued, the revelry continued, the immorality continued for a long time. Things seemed normal. For a long time, it seemed like nothing remarkable was going to happen until it did. And then it was too late. See, those people thought all that time that God had withheld his judgment, that, oh, God must be okay with this. Or, well, maybe God's not really there. 
They saw the period of God's patience as an opportunity to live it up with more sin. They didn't understand God was patiently giving them time to repent. But they didn't repent, and eventually God's patience ran out. And by the time they saw the flood and saw, oh, this is why Noah was building the ark. Oh, this is what Noah was warning us about. It was too late. The door was closed by God's own hand. Though those people outside might have then sought an opportunity to repent, even with tears, it was too late. They had missed their chance. And the fate of all unbelieving, unrepentant people was sealed. Now imagine being on the ark in the darkness, except for that little light from above, with the smells of the animals. Hearing at first the screams outside, the people pounding on the door, let us in! Until the screams fell silent. Until eventually other sounds began, as the waves beat against the ark, and the bodies of the dead smacked the hull. To be on the ark was to be surrounded by death for 150 days, floating without navigation, without propulsion, without steering, with nowhere to steer to. How could you stay sane? Only with faith, because to be on the ark was to live totally at the mercy of God. But to be on the ark was to live because God made good on his word of salvation. He delivered Noah and his family from judgment. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God unmade creation not to end the earth, but to begin again. And we see that as we're told God remembered Noah and the animals. Now, when we see the word remember, we usually think about the term forgetting. And so when we read this, we might think, well, God forgot Noah and then he remembered him. That's not the idea. This Hebrew word is not primarily about memory and forgetfulness. Rather, this is often used in the Old Testament to describe God fulfilling his commitments. So just as God had previously promised to spare Noah, his family, and the animals, now God acts in line with that. God makes good on his word. He ends the flood. Chapter 8, verse 1. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. Eventually, the rain stopped, and the water evaporated, and the water level decreased. Verse 4, And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Eventually, the ark stopped moving. The water levels got low enough that it settled in place on the mountains of Ararat. Now, in our world today, there is a place called Mount Ararat on the border of Turkey, Armenia, and Iran. And occasionally, you'll hear about expeditions going to Mount Ararat to look for the ark. But verse 4 is not specifying one particular mountain as the place of the ark. It's not talking about our Mount Ararat. Rather, this is saying that the mountains where the ark settled belonged to the ancient kingdom of Urartu, which is today in Armenia. And we don't know which mountain in Armenia the ark landed on. But eventually it settled in one of those mountains. 
And as the waters receded, the mountaintops became visible. Now, as this happened, did Noah open the door and leave? No. Because Noah didn't know what was happening outside the boat. We get that sense as we keep reading. Look at verse 6. And at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. Noah knows the ark has stopped moving, but he doesn't know for sure if the flood is over. Apparently, this window didn't give him a very good view. So he didn't want to risk opening the door. But to get some information, he runs an experiment. He sends a bird out, a raven, uh, and he's hoping this raven, as it returns to him, will give him some information. Verse 7, and the raven went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Ravens scavenged the dead for food, and there was plenty to eat. So the raven had no reason to return to the ark. So Noah did not gain any information from this test. So he tries again. Verse 8, then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. This time Noah chooses a bird that doesn't eat the dead, that eats food from the dry ground. Verse 9, but the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. The dove can't find any dry ground, so Noah gets some information. The world is still flooded. Verse 10, he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew the waters had subsided from the earth. The dove brings back some plant life. The ground is beginning to emerge. Did Noah leave the ark? No, he tries the test again. Verse 12, then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. The dove didn't return because now the earth was habitable again. It could find what it needed out there. So did Noah leave the ark? No. Verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. It's Noah's 601st birthday. He opens the door. He takes a look for himself. The land is dry. So he left the ark, right? No. Even though he has gotten favorable results from his tests, and even though he's seen it for himself, Noah won't leave the ark until God tells him to. Noah knows the ultimate arbiter of truth is not his personal experience. It's God's word. Verse 14. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. When he hears God's word, he leaves the ark, and life begins again. And just like in chapter 1, when God spoke to the first life forms, he says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The earth is renewed, and now there is a fresh start. So God made good on his word of salvation. He saved Noah and his family and the animals, just like he said. What should we take from this? 
Friends, God has spoken and God means what he says. God has spoken a word of judgment for sin. He told Noah he would destroy the world with a flood and he did it. He brought judgment and death on all who would not repent. And God still speaks a word of judgment for sin today. And God has graciously warned us in the Bible that destruction is coming on all who will not repent and believe. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Friends, God's wrath is coming on this world. Jesus says in Matthew 24, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And what will that be like? Well, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. What we read here will happen again. Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead and he will bring sudden destruction on all who have not repentantly believed in him. Now maybe today you don't believe that. Most people don't. Most people scoff at this, you know, repent the end, whatever. People laughed at the ark. They laughed at Noah's preaching. They're still laughing today because people are busy with their lives and with their interests and with their sins. They say, what's well, been thousands of years? If Jesus was coming back, it already would have happened. Friend, don't be deceived. Second Peter 3 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. God's not slow. God's patient. He's not in a hurry. He's in charge. Right now, he's calling on all people everywhere to repent in kindness. The door to the ark is open. There is a chance to survive, but it won't last forever. Time is running out. Our world is like Noah's world, filled with wickedness and violence. Friends, Christ is coming back soon. And when he does, it won't be a flood. It will be fire that comes on the world. And when people realize it's happening and when they see him, it will be too late. The door will be shut, just like in Noah's day. And maybe you say, well, hey, I'm not going to live to see that. I'll be gone by then. I'll, you know, death, I'll be out of here. They don't think that means you're going to escape accountability. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. Whether you live to the end or not, you will stand before Christ, and if you don't repent, you will face God's wrath. 2 Peter 3 says the earth was formed out of water, and through water, by the word of God, and by means of these, the world that existed in Noah's day was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Don't be deceived. The ungodly will face God's wrath in hell forever. Don't play chicken with God. You can't win. Repent while you can, because the time is coming when it will be too late. God said it, and he meant what he said. But there's hope. 
because God doesn't just speak a word of judgment. He offers mercy. God gives grace, unearned favor. He did it for Noah, and he does it for men and women today. God gives us a means of escaping the coming wrath in his son, Jesus Christ. As those in the ark survived, though they were surrounded by death and judgment, so will all who trust in Jesus be saved through, the, through all of the death and judgment that is to come on our world. How is that possible? Because in Jesus, God has established a means by which he can extend mercy to sinners and still satisfy his perfect justice. Sin demands the death penalty, and Jesus paid that penalty for us. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared. Jesus is God who became a man. He was born of a virgin. He did not inherit Adam's guilt or sin. He lived the perfect sinless life that we have all failed to live. And he died the death and bore the wrath of the Father each of us deserved to face. And he has risen triumphantly from the dead. He is the Lord of life. He is God. And today he calls on us in Mark 1.15 to repent and believe the gospel. That is how we receive God's grace. Through repentant faith. Friends, we've got to know our sin is leading us to death and hell. And we have to turn away from that by turning to Jesus. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus. He is Lord. He is God who has taken on human flesh, who has the right to tell us how to live. Entrust yourself to him because his death and resurrection is the only way you can withstand the coming judgment. That is the only way to be saved. And friends, if we believe in Jesus, the Bible says we are united with him. We are joined to him. The New Testament often says believers are in Christ. That's where we want to be. Just like Noah was in the ark, we want to be in Christ because that is the only place of safety today. For God has told us that is the only way to withstand the coming judgment. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In John 3, 16, he says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He says in John 3, 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. God has spoken a word of salvation for all who repentantly believe in Jesus, and he will make good on that word. Just as he saved Noah, he will save us to the uttermost. 1 Peter 3 tells us, In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which eight persons were brought safely through water, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says Noah's ark foreshadows salvation on this side of the cross. And I know he says baptism saves you, but when you read what he says, he doesn't mean the act of being baptized saves you. No work can save us. It's not the removal of dirt, he says. It's not the washing. It's what baptism represents. An appeal to God for a good conscience on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the only way to survive the judgment that is to come. We must entrust ourselves to Jesus. Now, if you've done that today, you say, well, okay, that's great. What should I take from this sermon? 
Let me give you one last passage here. 2 Peter 2.5 says, If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Believer, know that God knows how to rescue us out of trials. The people in the ark were in a very scary and uncertain situation. It was a lot like, uh, it was a lot better than being in the flood, but they were tossed about in the dark. They were surrounded by death. They were living moment by moment, hoping God would be faithful to them because they were living on his mercy entirely. That was a trial. And today we go through trials too, don't we? With our health, with our finances, with our family, with our faith. But no matter where you are today, see what happened in this passage. God was faithful to his people. Through the trial, God built the faith of Noah and his family. Through the trial, God faithfully sustained Noah and his family. Though things seemed really bad, they were, the people in the ark were safe in God's hands and he saved them. And believing, friend, he will bring you ultimately also into the new creation. So whatever you are enduring, whatever you are suffering, you can trust your problems to Jesus because the righteous person lives by faith. Trust God. Believe his word like Noah did. Trust it even above your own perceptions and experiences. Because while we look with our eyes, things may seem impossible. But Hebrews 11 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Yes, we may look at a trial and say, This looks impossible. It may seem more real to us than God. But God is there, though we cannot see him. He is more real, more powerful, and totally in control over everything we experience, even over life and death. And so we can trust him, knowing that he will remember his people. He will be faithful to us, and he will save us to the uttermost. So to conclude, what have we seen today? God sees all. God has spoken a word of judgment for the unrepentant and a word of salvation for all who believe. Through God's when we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And friend, we need to know that God will make good on what he has said. May we take refuge in Jesus, the ark who brings us safely through the waters of death and judgment into the new world, which is certainly